0: So, I'd like to invite you now to go to Hebrews chapter 2. Believe it or not, we are out of chapter 1. Five sermons in one chapter. And uh, I think it may have been Silas that said, Hey, Dad, you know, we've been in Hebrews 1 for a while. Um, What's this mean for the rest of the book? (laughs) Hebrews, 13 chapters. And And we made a big deal at the beginning of this series that the, the author says, I've given you this brief exhortation. So we're not following in, the, in line with the author's intent to have a brief exhortation if we string this out too long. Not really. Um, but chapter 1 really does set the stage and is the basis for everything that is going to roll out from this point forward. How many of you this week got, how many of you got got by a Cyber Monday deal? Okay, you weren't planning on buying something. You saw the deal, you're like, I cannot pass up on that. I have to go to Amazon Locker on Penn's campus and pick up two iron skillets because of Cyber Monday. Okay? Advertisements are powerful, especially if they are presenting a good product that's easy to talk about, easy to give. Um, all the dimensions and characteristics of its selling point and why it's worthy of possessing. Not that the writer of Hebrews is trying to market Jesus, but what he's done in an unbelievable fashion has laid out for us in this opening prologue an unbelievable, beautiful, picturesque explanation as to why Jesus Christ is the best ever. There's no one like him. He should be believed in. He should be followed. He should be adored. You should give all that you have to have him. Because there's no one absolutely no one like him. Now we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 where the author begins to make his big application points as a result of what he has laid out for us in chapter 1. I invite your attention now to those verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Let us hear the word of God. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. to his will. That is God's word. May he add his blessing to its reading and now preaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Remember the book of Hebrews is less like a letter and more like a sermon. In chapter one, we had exposition, and now in chapter two, we have exhortation based on that exposition. He's made his point about the surpassing greatness of Jesus. He's backed it up with scripture. It even feels sermon-esque. Now he applies this point. He applies what he's, he's unpacked from the Old Testament scriptures, proving that Jesus is who he said he is, did what he said he would do, and because of this, everything is different. He applies now to the point, he applies it to the lives of his hearers, And what we have here in the application is the first of several warnings in the book of Hebrews. And so here in the first of these warning passages in Hebrews, here's the big idea. We must never stop paying attention to Jesus, lest we drift away from the faith. If we are going to remain true to Jesus to the end, which is one of the key burdens to the book of Hebrews... We must give constant attention to the theological reality, the spiritual power, and the practical implications of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how that changes everything must remain the most crucial reality in our lives. When we lose sight of that reality, the author of Hebrews is warning, we are in danger. When we lose sight of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we are in spiritual danger. A danger that the writer of Hebrews is urgently warning us about in these four verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So let's dive into these four verses by first considering a sobering reality. Verse 1. In verse 1, the author moves from exposition to application. And the application comes in the form of an urgent warning that can be summarized as follows. Don't drift away from Jesus. If you don't keep the supremacy of Jesus in your head, if you don't keep the, the surpassing greatness of Christ upon your heart, then over time, the author warns you will drift away from the Christian faith. This is part of the author's passion and, 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 and urgent desire to communicate to the hearers of this sermon how it is that there are some who initially seem to profess faith in Jesus and follow Jesus and serve Jesus and worship Jesus, but out of nowhere, they just fell off the face of the earth. They just posted on Instagram, I'm not a Christian anymore. How did that happen? It doesn't just happen, the author warns. It's a slow and gradual drift that happens when we get our eyes off Christ. So the urgent warning of verse 1 has both a positive and a negative element. Here's the positive side of the warning, the first part of verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must give ongoing attention to the good news of Jesus Christ. The what we have heard of verse 1 is referring back to what the author has previously articulated with with majestic rhetoric in chapter 1. That there's no one like Jesus and hopefully you can, if you've been following along with us here in the series in Hebrews, you can you begin to rattle off these, these great realities about Jesus that are unpacked in chapter 1. That he is the, the revelator and the creator and the sustainer and the owner. And he is the one who is high above all things. He's the ultimate message and messenger. Angels are awesome, but Jesus is better. It's chapter 1. He's above all, over all, and worthy of the highest honor. That's what we have heard. That's what he's referring to in verse 1. There's no one like Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the author says you must pay close attention to that reality. You must pay close attention to that good news. In other words, do not allow that to get out of your head. Do not allow that to go past your heart. The idea of these words, paying attention, it's an interesting word in the original language. It means to keep your eye on the wheel. It was a nautical phrase that was used to describe a captain's responsibility to keep his eye on the wheel of a ship. Because if you would take your eye off the wheel, the ship would drift and go off course. So the idea here with pay attention is keep your eye on the wheel, because if you don't, you will naturally veer off course. And so, Who's the wheel? You may have heard the song, Jesus Take the Wheel, okay? No, no, this isn't Jesus taking the wheel. This is Jesus being the wheel. Jesus is the wheel. Keep your eye on him. If you take your eye off of Jesus, what will happen? What's the negative side of the warning? Lest we drift away from it. If we don't keep our eye on the wheel, the wheel being Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what's been unpacked about his surpassing greatness in chapter 1, all that he is, all that he is for us, all that he is willingly and graciously for undeserving sinners like us, all that Jesus is, that surpassing greatness, that name above all names, that's the wheel. And if we take our eyes off of him, we will drift away from it yitz being Jesus or the gospel or the Christian faith. So here's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in this warning. He's bringing to our, our attention a very important doctrine in the Christian faith. It's the doctrine of perseverance. It is Christ, let's make this clear, it is Christ and Christ alone who saves us. Amen? Like the great of the last Puritans, Jonathan Edwards once said, we add nothing to our salvation except our sin. (laughs) And he graciously forgives it. All we do to receive God's salvation, all we do to experience forgiveness, deliverance, and acceptance with God is look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Rest on Christ. Rely on Christ and the accomplishments of his life, his death, and his resurrection. He alone can save us. We cannot save ourselves. Amen? Do you remember? Just take a moment. Do you remember that time in your life when you first looked to Christ? When you looked to him to do for you what you could not do for yourself? I still remember when it was for me. And we all, we don't, all don't necessarily have to be able to pinpoint that moment when we experience conversion, but for me, I remember it quite clearly. After about a year of attending a youth group in the neighborhood down in my, in North Philly neighborhood, Junietta Park, I was invited to go to a winter retreat that someone graciously paid for me to go and attend. And I remember sitting there During that uh, winter retreat, hearing someone preach the same gospel that I had heard Friday night after Friday night for that whole year with no effect upon my heart. And there on that Friday night at that winter retreat, a very simple preacher unpacked the good news of Christ and something happened in my heart that can only be explained by the activity of God. I recognized that night as a 15 year old teenager that my sins were deserving of God's judgment. And that my only hope of forgiveness and escaping that judgment was to grab onto Jesus for dear life, to believe that his life, his crucifixion, his glorious resurrection were my only hope. And that night, I looked to Jesus. For the first time, and he saved me. Jesus saved me. I looked to Jesus, and he saved me. Do you remember when you looked to Jesus, and he saved you? Jesus alone saves. You look to him And he did for you what you could not do for yourself. The doctrine of perseverance says the same way we are saved is the same way we persevere to the end. We keep looking to Jesus. Just like it was Christ who saved us, it is Christ who keeps us. And just like we look to him to save us, we keep looking to him to keep us until the end. And the author of Hebrews is saying, here's how you avoid this, this treacherous condition of drifting away. You keep looking to Jesus. You pay close attention to who he is, to what he's done, and how it makes all the difference in the world and in your life. So the author is saying, never stop looking to him. Don't take your gaze of trust and admiration off the one who loved you and gave himself for you. We must persevere, the author is arguing, in paying attention to the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. We must, you must, We must pay careful attention to him as our savior. We must pay careful attention to him as our sustainer. We must pay careful attention to him as our sovereign. We must pay careful attention to him as our God. We must not take our eyes off of Christ. My friends, this is one of the reasons why we gather the way we do in the Lord's Day. Here is a weekly opportunity for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to get together and make sure we keep looking to Jesus. Oh, we come together because he's worthy of our worship. We come together because he deserves to be extolled. We come together because he deserves the songs that we sing and the lives that we live and the submission that we bring to do his work on earth as it is in heaven. He's worthy of all of that. But we come together because we need it. I need it. You need it. With all the stuff that goes on in between Monday and Sunday, I need this to get my gaze back where it belongs, don't you? We gather, and our gathering is a means of, a gesture of, looking to Christ, keeping our eye on the wheel lest we drift. How do we drift? how do we drift away? Well, I think there's at least two general ways that we drift if we get our gaze off of Jesus. I think one's just very obvious. We drift into sin, right? If we get our gaze off of Jesus, if we get our gaze off of him as our savior from sin, we become less aware and less sensitive to the fact that we are daily tempted to sin, If we get our gaze off of him as our sovereign, the Lord of our lives, we are more frequently less aware of his expectations for our lives as our king, as he's authoritatively spoken to us in his word. And so one of the most obvious ways we drift from Christ as we get our gaze off of Christ is by going where we shouldn't go, doing what we shouldn't do, saying what we shouldn't say, desiring what we shouldn't desire, and therefore living how we ought not to live. That's one way we drift. You get your eye off the wheel, you're going to go in a direction you shouldn't go, into sin. But there's another way that we drift. It's less obvious, and it almost seems less deadly, but it's just as treacherous. We not only drift into sin, we also drift into self-righteousness as we get our gaze off of Christ, we can drift from Jesus in religious ways. We can begin to take credit for things that only God deserves credit for. We begin to take responsibility for things that only God truly is responsible for. We begin to judge people as if we were Jesus ourselves. We begin to develop a self-righteous, religious, holier-than-thou, I make myself a acceptable before God kind of attitude, and that is just as deadly. And so when we drift, when we get our eyes off of Jesus, we can go the way of the pagan, or we can go the way of the Pharisee. We must keep our eyes on Jesus. So ask yourself this morning, it's why we're here. One of the reasons why we're here, let this make us feel uncomfortable. It's a warning passage, friends. Have you gotten your eyes off of Jesus. The danger with drift is that you don't detect it until you've experienced it. We don't begin to, exp- to detect the drift until we've already drifted. And you say, well, how do I get things right? Get your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes back on on the wheel. And he will steer you. Right. Ask yourself. Has there been a time. Where, where Christ was more precious. Where worshiping him was more of a delight. Where becoming like him was your desire. Serving him was your rightful duty. But, but now those things are less. And less desirous. In your heart. What has happened? Could it be? You've gotten your eyes of Christ. When we see him as supreme, when we see him like he was expounded upon in chapter one, then we will worship. We will be changed. We will serve. We will live lives that glorify God. Maybe this Advent season, for some of you, my brothers and sisters, needs to be a time to re-evaluate, reevaluate your schedule and your life rhythms so that you can create more space to keep your eyes on Jesus. During the announcements, we, we talked a little bit about the difference between the, big, the little C and the big C Christmas. Here's one of the biggest differences between the little C and the big C Christmas, other than the fact that oftentimes little C Christmas, as fun as it is, it can, can get us off track of what it's all about. And it's this, the little C Christmas is busy. Little Sea Christmas is hustle and bustle. Little Sea Christmas is I got presents to buy and food to cook and places to go and people to visit. And by the time Little C Christmas is over, you need a vacation. But Advent is about entering into the weight of the kingdom of God. Not the W-E-I-G-H-T weight, but the W-A-I-T of the Kingdom of God. The weight. Slow down. Realize that the best is yet to come. Recognize that, yes, as we look around us, things are broken. Things are sad. Things are gloomy. Things are just a a shadow of what they ought to be. And let's take some time to consider that this is not the way it will remain. Christ will come when he's good and ready, when the Father is planned. And we wait for that we slow down for that. We don't look at our watches and tap our toes for that. We don't have our hand on our mouths waiting for the next lightning deal for that. We stop and we slow down and we savor Christ. Maybe the rest of this Advent season needs to be a time of getting your eyes back on Christ by slowing down. Say, I can't, there's just so much going on ask yourself this question, please, why is there so much going on? How has that happened? Take the time to consider that and see how it may be self-imposed for various reasons. Get your eyes back on Jesus. The author warns us of this sobering reality. We will drift if we don't keep our eyes on Christ. And so friends, if you've drifted, if right now is a moment of clarity, yes, I see it now. I, I, I've been drifting. What do you do? You tell God you're sorry and get your eyes back on Jesus. Amen? This is not pull up your bootstraps, try to make everything wrong right. It's very simple. The same one who saves you is the same one who sustained you, is the same one who will, will help you persevere, who will help get you back on course. Get your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Let's be a little baptist about Jesus. Come on. So we have this sobering warning. This sobering reality. If we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, we will drift. Second, look at the specific rationale there. He goes further in explaining why. Drift is a general concept, but where does drift, where does that, where does that end up? If you keep drifting, where will you go? Well, it's not good. Second, notice how the author provides some specific rationale for paying close attention to the message of Jesus and avoiding this drift. Here's the reason why. God holds us accountable for our response to his message through his messengers. This was certainly true, the author argues, for what he revealed through the angels, And if it was true for what he revealed through his angelic messengers, then that is certainly true and even more true for what he's revealed through his one and only son. This is one of the contrasts of the book of Hebrews. So the warning continues with the following rationale. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation. So the angels declared a reliable message, and rejecting that message had severe consequences. You can track this throughout the Old Covenant. So, what's being referenced here with concerning these angelic messengers that was a very widely held jewish tradition even though the text of exodus doesn't spell this out clearly is that the angels actually mediated the message of god's law from god the father to moses on mount sinai it's not explicit in the text in exodus but paul picks this up and says this is how it went down galatians chapter 3 verse 19 why then the law It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So Paul's saying, yeah, the, the tradition holds true. That's, what's ha- that's what happened. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the angels of God were mediating that message, bringing it directly down to God, which makes sense especially in light of Exodus chapter 34. This is just a little bit of an apologetic to, to kind of spell this out a little bit clearly. Especially that makes sense in, in Exodus chapter 34 when God says to Moses, you can't see my face. Well, wait a minute, you were up there receiving it. Well, how was he receiving it? He was receiving it through mediation, which is the consistent record of God's revelation throughout the scriptures. God relates to man through mediation. That's why it's so amazing that we have the great mediator, Jesus Christ, between, before, between God and men. I digress a little bit, but give some explanation here. The Jews believed, in, and Paul confirms, and the author of Hebrews indicates that angels mediated this message of God's law. And this was a very, very important message The thou shouts and the thou shalt nots were significant. The thou shouts and the thou shalt nots were the boundaries and the parameters for how man would relate to God and how man should relate to man. And they they enter into this covenant relationship. And if you keep the message, if you believe the message, if you hold the message, if you keep the law, then the covenant will be kept, and there will be blessing and there will be joy. But if you break it, if you reject the message, then there will be death and curse. So we know the story. We know what happened. They rejected the message and God held them accountable. There are many examples of this. For instance, we read about the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. What did God's message say? Don't worship idols. What did they do? They worshiped idols. What happened? God held them accountable. God judged their disobedience swiftly and decisively. And so we read in Exodus thirty-two, thirty-five. then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. Because they rejected the message sent by angelic messengers, they received a just retribution. That's what the author's saying. And so what's his point? He says if that's what happened, when God's people re- rejected the message that was delivered by angels, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that was brought to us by the incarnate Son of God himself? I was studying for the sermon earlier in the week, and as I was, I was trying to get my head around why we why we are more affected by a direct message than an indirect message. And I was thinking through this, and I was talking with Pace, and I said, you know, what's the big difference between me sending you upstairs to say to to Silas, hey, Dad told me to tell you this, with me coming up and saying, Silas, do this. And so we're just kind of talking about the differences between receiving a message indirectly and receiving a message directly. And so here's the difference. When, When the person of authority, brings the message directly, it comes across as more urgent, comes across as more personal, it comes across as more necessary to respond to quickly. And this actually happened, we talked about this probably like on Wednesday, and this morning I asked Payson, I don't know if you knew I did this, I said, hey, ask Silas to throw down a roll of paper towels. And then you go upstairs and you say, hey, Dad said they're on a roll of paper towels. Do you think those paper towels came down? No, Pete, you're right. No, they didn't. They didn't. And it wasn't because my son was trying to disobey, and I don't want to give that wrong impression at all. Um, it, was a lot, it, would have, it was a lot different of a response. And the time lag is a lot different than if I would have stood down and said, hey, Cy, si, throw down those towels. Right? It, here's my guess. Based on previous experience, it probably would have happened like that. Here is what the author is saying. The Son of God left heaven and came to earth. Here's the message of Christmas. God put on human skin and came down to earth with a message. This message is so important, so vital. The recipients of the message are so precious to him that he would come directly and say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you reject the direct message from the Son of God, look at what happened when the angel's message was rejected. You will not escape if you neglect so great a salvation. His point is, how ridiculous would it be? How regrettable would it be to to reject the message that was delivered to mankind through the one who was just expounded upon in chapter one of this letter. So that's the logic. God has lots of ways of getting his message across, and he's used lots of different mediums. He's used prophets and priests and kings. He's used the angels of heaven. But for this message, the most critical message of human history, he came and delivered it Himself. God came down and offers a great salvation to all who will receive this message. So what makes this salvation so great? Again, it can be stated both positively and negatively. Negatively, the salvation declared by Christ is great because he offers an escape. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, meaning part of what's so amazing about the salvation is it provides a way to escape, to escape the judgment of God on humanity for our cosmic rebellion against God. God provides a way to escape the wages of sin, which is death. God provides a way, and the author of Hebrews, we're going to see as we go through this, The judgment of God is no joking matter, for it's appointed unto man once to die, and then after that, we stand before God, and we're going to give an account for our lives. You need someone there to get your back on that day. If you go into that day without someone having your back, you're a goner. It's like the knucklehead drug dealer from Philly who gets picked up, goes down to um, the, the Filbert station, and says, you know what, I don't need an attorney. I'll represent myself. What are you, Dumb? at least take the public defender cuz you don't know how to defend yourself you're already guilty you're already in trouble what adds insult to injury is rejecting counsel oh how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation god is saying i am offering a way for your back to be covered on that day when you stand before God the Father and give an account for your life. His name is Jesus. He lived for you and provides for you a perfect righteousness. He died for you and provides a covering for all your guilt and sin. He rose for you to give you a new life. You want him there with you on that day. Amen? He says, but if you, if you, if you neglect that salvation, you will not escape. But the good news is you can escape. My friend, if you're considering the truth claims of the gospel here this morning and you're you're not yet a follower of Jesus, i got good news for you. I hope you're hearing it loud and clear. You're accountable before God. You'll have to represent your life before him. And i got good news for you. Jesus wants to represent you on that day. He's done for you what you cannot do for yourself. He did the right thing for you. He took the the curse and the punishment in your place on the cross for you and he will join you arm in arm, unashamed of you on that day and you will be forgiven and delivered and will find your way in the paradise. But do not neglect him. Do not reject him. I'm not asking you this morning to become a member of this church. I'm asking you this morning to put your hope in Jesus. He's your only hope. What makes this salvation so great? You can escape, and then positively, time does not permit, but oh, Hebrews unpacks all that we inherit in this great salvation. Chapter four, eternal rest. Chapter 11, citizens of a a city whose builder and maker is God. It just gets really good. Uh, forgiveness and reconciliation and, and, and covering and and deliverance is all getting the getting the sin and the judgment and the junk out of the way, which opens the way for us to be with God in his place without sin forever. That's the positive side of this great salvation, and I can't wait to highlight it as we make our way through Hebrews. But one last thing before we're done here this morning. All that I've just said, this message. The sober warning, why why should we listen to it? Because it's supernaturally reliable. That's the final point. For the remainder of verse 3 and with his closing argument in verse 4, the author is saying, take all of this into consideration, but let me, let, me just, let me just make this clear. Everything that I've said about who Jesus is and what he's done and why he should be trusted and why you shouldn't take your eyes off him is, is because there are significant witnesses that attest to the reliability of this message. This isn't just wishful thinking. This isn't mythology. This isn't, I got to find a crutch because life is so hard. I got to have some kind of hope. No, no, no. There are supernatural witnesses that attest to the reliability of this message. This is real. This is historical, yes, but it's also supernatural. And so for the remainder of verse 3 and verse 4, the author takes us, if you will, into the courtroom and calls three witnesses to stand and validate his point. I say courtroom because he's employing legal terminology all throughout the rest of this passage. Attested is a legal term in verse 3. W- bore witness is a legal term in verse 4. And so the, the Jewish recipient, this is, ma- this is music to their ears because God said in Deuteronomy 19 that if, if, a, if a matter is going to be believed, it must be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. Here are the witnesses. Jesus, the apostles, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, take the stand. Apostles, take the stand. Holy Spirit, take the stand. We call you to witness. And what they do is they testify to the reliability of the Father's message that he provides this great salvation through his Son. So look at first, it's Jesus. It was declared at first by the Lord. These words matter. So what makes Jesus such a credible witness? He is the Lord, meaning this message was declared from the very mouth of God. That's his point. I I just find it funny that those who reject the good news of Jesus still want to say that Jesus was a good teacher. You can't do that. You can't say, you can't reject Jesus as God Reject Jesus as the only Savior of the world, and still say he was a good teacher, because he taught that he was God and that he was the only Savior of the world. Right? C.S. Lewis and I, I get that. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. He he unpacks this reality so eloquently. Let me just read it. He says here, "I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him—that's Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God." That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else, it must have been what he had for breakfast, because that, that line always cracks me up. Cracks me up. Never mind. Um, or else he would be the devil of hell. I just got the eye roll from my kids. What a dad joke. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up before a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Read the Gospels. Listen to his teaching. He made it clear, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, but by me." Jesus takes the stand. His message comes directly from the mouth of the Lord, the sovereign of heaven and earth. Second witness, to the apostles. And it was attested to us by those who heard the argument is that this message was collaborated by eyewitnesses. The apostles in particular. The apostles not only heard the message of of salvation directly from the mouth of the Lord, they also witnessed his rejection, his betrayal, his crucifixion, the empty tomb three days later, the Great Commission, the ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit of Pentecost. And they laid down their lives to herald this good news. They gave up their lives for this cause. The apostles provide great witness and have provided a a preserved witness for us in the pages of the New Testament. What they saw and heard from Jesus, we have recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And then the third witness, the Holy Spirit While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The argument is that the message was confirmed and validated by powerful demonstrations of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did this during the teaching ministry of Jesus. The teaching ministry of Jesus was attended to by miraculous demonstrations powers by miraculous signs and wonders the sight sight of the blind was recovered the lame were raised the dead were raised from the dead people were miraculously fed with little to sufficiently take care of thousands jesus Jesus' earthly ministry was attended to by the powerful witness and validation of the Holy Spirit. And then the apostles, very similarly, as they went forward and taught the good news of Jesus post-ascension in the power of the Holy Spirit, their proclamation was was attended to by the attestation of the Spirit's power through signs and wonders and miracles. But not just them. The language of the last part of verse 4 References the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will, which is a reference to the way the Spirit gifts the church. And so as the church continues the good work of the apostles to proclaim the gospel in word and deed, advancing the kingdom of God through the the proclamation of the gospel, that proclamation of the gospel by the church is also promised to be attended to and validated by powerful demonstrations of the Holy Spirit. This is what happened when the church worshiped in the first century. The ordinary life and liturgy of the church in 1 Corinthians 14 was attended to in, by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, demonstrating that God was there among them so that those who were in unbelief would baw- fall to their knees and say, God is in this place. In other words, Christ is real, His gospel. true. This is what Paul said about the churches in Galatia. The ongoing work of the Spirit was functioning in these these small churches spread throughout this region. He said, does he who supplies this Spirit to you and work miracles among you do this by works or by faith? And so the, the, the first century church continued to experience the powerful moving of the Holy Spirit in ways similar to the apostles, in ways similar to Jesus Christ himself, all attesting to and validating the significance of the message of Christ. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, says this about this final word in this section. He says, The God who has spoken his final revelation in his Son had established beyond doubt the reliability of this saving message to the listeners. He's given us witness. The message has come from the mouth of God himself. It was propagated and preserved by those who saw him and heard him. And now 2,000 plus years later, we are still here making a big deal about it. All of that builds the case for why this message should be believed And why this message should stay at the center of our lives, lest we drift away. Oh, church, would we use this as our apologetic? We don't have to do a lot of convincing. We don't have to come up with all these fine, eloquent explanations for why the gospel is valid. Let's stick to what the scriptures clearly reveal and trust God to work through that. Christ has proclaimed this message. It was listened to and believed and seen by hundreds of witnesses, including the apostles, preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. And the Spirit of God continues 2,000 years later to take that message and transform lives. And if he's transformed our lives, my brothers and sisters, then here's what my heart says, that there are many more people out there whose lives will be transformed by this powerful gospel. So my friends, let's keep our eyes on Jesus lest we drift as we keep our eyes on the one who saved us, we will be preserved to the end. And as we journey toward the end, may God add to our number those who are being saved as we testify to his saving power by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God Almighty, we understand that we have received from your word this morning a strong exhortation from the writer of Hebrews. We have been positioned by your Spirit to be made uncomfortable. As we considered this morning, as Drew brought our attention to the tension of Advent, we we want to Stand in that tension, even in this moment. That we are those who are secure in Christ. He has saved us. Yet we must also continue to keep our gaze on Christ lest we drift away. Lord, help that tension not to shake us in unhealthy ways, leading us to condemnation. But may that tension bring adequate conviction, calling our wandering eyes back to the good news of Christ, calling our wandering hearts back to the supremacy of the Savior, bringing our wills back to submission to the sovereignty of our Savior. God, I pray that this Advent season would be a time for us to take into healthy consideration this warning that we have received. May we pay close attention to what we have heard lest we drift away. For how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Salvation declared from the mouth of your Son. A salvation attested to by hundreds of witnesses. And a salvation validated by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. God, help us to keep our eyes on him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.